0: The Surfer's Journal is the pinnacle of thoughtful, meticulously curated writing and imagery within the surf world. The publication was founded in 1992 by Steve Pesman, along with his wife Debbie, which, with the addition of his 20 years publishing Surfer magazine, makes him the surf world's most experienced publisher. In today's episode of Surf Splendor, Steve shares stories of his youth shaping surfboards, riding cosmic waves with Timothy Leary, the friends he's made along the way, and the legacy of the surfer's journey. I'm your host, David Scales, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve Pesman.
1: I, uh, when I, I, I started surfing in, like, 1957, and, you know, and back back then there was only a few hundred surfers around, so uh, you felt like you are in on something pretty special and something kind of secret, and you felt like the rest of the world were sort of uh, unknowing, a little bit dorkish, and you were very cool because you knew what the real deal was. And yeah. surfing, just the sensation of surfing uh, and everything about it, the culture, just everything was so appealing that it you you got what John Severson, one of his first surf movies was called Surf Fever Mm. and that's what you got when you tried it.
0: I think no matter what you're doing when you're a teenager you feel that a little bit you know even if it's playing video games. That's
1: probably right. But
0: there is certainly something unique. Yeah
1: well I, I went from a L.A. city kid who didn't know how to swim to a surfer in the space of about two, two and a half years, and yeah. so I was, the you know, in elementary school, I was the kid that when they were dividing up teams, the teacher had to say at the end, okay, you go there, you go there, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but later on in school, I kind of came into my size, and I was, I was a pretty good athlete, but never a team guy, and surfing became my sense of self-identity, mm. and it was hugely important to me, and, you know, we, The guy started with that, a 41 Ford pickup truck, and we built a grass shack on the back, and we'd go down to the Huntington Cliffs and spend the weekend there. And, you know, it was just really fascinating, trying to get good enough so we could show our face at the pier where the cool guys hung out.
0: Which is still the way it is today. Well, it kind of is.
1: You know, Tom Morey, who invented the boogie board, uh, made the comment that uh, surfing is a lot like uh, walking the picket fence for your girlfriend. And uh, most of this, it's Uncanny how most of the surf spots are easily viewable, you yeah. know, from the pier, from here, from there. But, and so it's really an audience, p- although it's a personal thing, you're really surfing for approval a lot of the time. Yeah. It and it's, happen. you know, so it's, it's uh, kind of an interesting thing. But anyway, um, I shipped out, I went to Hawaii in the winter of 62, 63, and rode big ways, rode Waimea Bay and Sunset and all that stuff. And I came back, I was pretty full of myself. That's and uh, I ended up uh, working for Mickey Munoz at Ole Surfboards. Hobie had just bought it, and uh, I was his left-hand man, and I learned a lot from him. He's, uh, he was a, a kid in the late 40s into the 50s, a Malibu, iconic California surf personality, and he's still going mm-hmm. um, with SUP, and he's an incredible athlete and a wonderful guy, yeah. very bright.
0: I'm actually interviewing
1: him for the podcast as well. Yeah, he's uh, he's a national treasure, and um, uh, after by the then I shipped out in the merchant marine. I worked as a I worked for juvenile hall as a night attendant at forestry camps for L.A. County delinquent boys because my dad had been a camp director. who got me in anyway, and then I shipped out in the merchant marine in 1965 on a on a uh, a ship. With uh, eight thousand six hundred tons of hams and slits, due for uh, PXs, you know, for the for our fighting troops in Vietnam, nineteen sixty five was early, and uh, that was a six month voyage where the crew uh, rebelled against the uh, the officers, and there was all kinds of stuff that went down on that. Uh, but it was it was pretty incredible and a great experience. I came back and soon after that. Um, A friend of mine, Bill Wetzel, uh, was asked by Foss Foam, that was a secondary foam supplier, but, you know, large, he said, I have like 5,000 second blanks, I don't know what to do with them, I think they'd be more marketable if they were shaped, so I want you to shape them. So this guy, my friend Bill, uh, got me to team shape with him, and he taught me how to use the tools, and so he'd do the first step, he'd outline, I'd band, he'd, you know, uh, Contour and sander, and we just switched back and forth, and and so over a period of the summer, we both team shaped about two thousand boards, oh and uh, and we got six bucks a piece, uh, and he got four and I got two, which was appropriate. Finally, you know, I I went back to my home range, which was Huntington Beach, Seal Beach, and started shaping, and we started a surfboard business. Um, uh, uh, Stu and I started shaping contract. Uh, shaping for surf shops to have make their own boards, and then and we built a shaping machine that would that would cut the rocker in the blank with one pass on the top and one pass on the bottom. You know we had to invent, yeah. we had to learn how to do something. That was the basic lesson of that for us, and uh, and I learned how to shape pretty well. And the deal about shaping surfboards is um, learning how to use the tools and control the tools. And the fewer times you t- touch the board, the more true and refined your shape will be. So scrubbing away and all that stuff means you're kind of whittling. Mm. But if you t- if you take big bold cuts and go right to where you want to be, real quick and efficient, the shapes those are the shapes that turn out to be the good ones. Wow. And you remove foam and patterns um, like you kind of sweep it off and then sweep it off and blend and stuff but and learning how to read foam like you pick the blank up from the tail and look and you have side lights that cast a shadow across the board and learning how to read the foam is a big part of it like if this curve goes down like that and this curve goes down but a little less down than this one then you go over and you sure. adjust it and so it, it's a it's a very logical process Yeah and uh, that requires just tool control, so if you had to, the more abstract the tool, the harder it is to control, Mm -hmm. the more you can control the cutting blade. So a hand plane is infinitely more controllable than a power planer because you can see the blade, you see the the shaving peeling through it, you know exactly what's going on. So it's an interesting intellectual chess game Mm. Uh, that combined with surfboard theory, which is a foil kind of uh, concept, like a wing. And uh, we we were like alchemists, you know. We were the 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 shapers have always been <clears throat> an integral part of the sport. And surfing's always been unique because uh, the boards, for the most part, until the last decade or two, have been handmade for each person, for the most right. part. And uh, there's no other sport with as much of a following where what you use to do it is handmade for you. Right. And yet, they were only like $500, $700, I mean ridiculously cheap. Right. And there was no profit in it because no one could mark the board up because uh, you can buy a blank and get it, shape it and get it glassed for four, 400 bucks and that controlled the price. So it was a funny deal, very high level of art and skill Um, and no profit but you could you could you would be paid for your craft so you know when I started shaping you made 10 bucks a board and it took I don't know you know two or three hours Um, nowadays shapers get anywhere from 35 to 100 bucks a board normally and uh, it takes them an hour or so so it's you know you can make a living a good living Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, it's not really healthy, but it's kind of wonderful. Yeah. But I feel bad for people that are in their 60s and still shaping because they never developed any other resource for supporting themselves. Right. Because it gets old and it gets hard. And, and um, so it's a funny thing.
0: Yeah.
1: It's the same for people that surf. You see them abandon most of societal's normal roles in order to dedicate themselves to surfing. And uh, at first, you're jealous of them because you're going to work and they're surfing. And you're doing this and they're traveling to some perfect place somewhere. And, but eventually, eventually, as you grow older, the comfort of having children and a family and yeah. all those things, um, uh, and the lack of it f- in their lives becomes really uh, very profound. You know Mickey Dora was uh, famous for saying oh, when the surf's good I'm on it and when it isn't I don't want to know about it.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm
1: not a surfer. Don't call me a surfer. I'm not a surfer. Right. I, I just ride waves when it's good.
0: <laughs> um, for posterity's sake can you tell me about um, Peterson Surfing in 19... 19- Peterson's
1: International Surfing? Yeah. Well um, my relationship it was started, I think, by Leroy Granis, and then it went through some ownership phases. It ended up uh, being published by Dick Graham, who was uh, uh, a jock, a, a basketball player at Chapman College and a and a Marine uh, out of the Marine Corps, and a cool guy and a real athlete, but not and a body surfer and a diver, but not really a board surfer. And he was publishing Surfing Magazine because... Uh, the opportunity fell into his lap, and he had a kind of uh, opening at Peterson, and so he was on it. So he hired a buddy of his named Duke Boyd, who had just started Hang Tan, which was the first real mass-produced authentic surfwear. Mm-hmm. And he hired Hank, uh, Duke to merchandise Peterson's International Surfing Magazine like he merchandised his clothing line. Because Duke hung out at Huntington and gave trunks to the cool guys and said, Hey, wear these, give them back to me after a while, let me see how they do. Um, and he'd drive to Rincon and give guys a ride. And he surfed himself. but So he was milking this kind of underground surf culture for its authenticity um, and, and injecting it into his his Hank Ten line and injecting it into Peterson's Surfing magazine. So he came to Stu and I and asked us to write a technical article about surfboard design, got it. basic elements of surfboard theory, and this is the article that we wrote. and And Surfer, John Severson at Surfer was the leading magazine, sure. And he went, oh, and so he got this uh, f- uh, physicist that surfed, Terry Hendricks from La Jolla, to write a technical article that was really a technical article, you know. Yeah. But this was this started. Uh, a relationship with that surfing magazine where I wrote travel articles and, sure. and so forth and then one day they uh duke said hey you want to come come inside and be an editor so I did and about 6 months later that magazine folded and uh, so I went down to surfer and said hey uh could I contribute uh articles to you guys and they had kind of gotten to know who I was uh, because they sold us advertising for our surf shop, and they kind of knew that I shaped and. And they said, "Well, you know, uh, our editor is leaving. He had a salary dispute with John, and and he's leaving. He 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 wanted eleven hundred a month, and John was only paying him a thousand, so he's, he he quit. And uh, John's going to take over editing the book, but he'd like to have someone work." to do the, you know, do the letters and just do the donkey work. And I said, great. And, and they said, well, how much were you making at surfing? And I, I was making 500 I told him 7 And he said, well, would you take 6 I said, yeah. And all of a sudden, I was at Surfer. Well, little did I know that John had recently sold the magazine to a holding company that had, uh, a, a new holding company uh, that had, put together by a guy named Bud Fabian who had just moved to Monarch Bay and was, um, had retired from being the, the CEO of Hunt's Foods and he was a corporate turnaround guy. His face was on Time Magazine for turning around Dresser Tool, which is a big oil tool company. And, um, and, so, and John was in an earnout kind of uh, running it during a transition time and looking for a publisher. And uh, somehow I ended up, he, he took me to lunch one day and he, and he said, well, I guess you're it. And I said, I'm what? And he said, you, you want to be the publisher or surfer? And I kind of ch- choked. And he said, "I ah, don't worry. He says, you uh, edit for three or four hours a day, publish for an hour a day and go surfing. It'll be good for you. Keep it five years. So uh, I accepted and... Uh, um it was a going magazine ten years old when i when I uh, became the publisher and everyone there knew what to do, so they kept me propped up sure and because I was the insulation from the holding company for better living
0: yeah
1: and uh, and eventually over a period of of uh ten or fifteen years, I figured publishing out and I stayed at that I stayed at surfer for twenty one years yeah as a publisher and um, and then debbie, who when I left there had become the ad director for Surfer, and i both we were married at the time, mm-hmm. and we both left to do the journal
0: well um in your piece with Timothy Leary, which we'll talk about in
1: I was mid seventies
0: yeah, we'll talk about that uh at length, but one of the thing that things that he discusses is the importance of timing and um how surfers are very attuned to like capitalizing the exact moment when an opportunity arises. Can you tell me about the timing of launching the Surfers Journal and like what was the surfing zeitgeist at that time? And um,
1: well, was there a niche yeah. being
0: unfulfilled? You know that. Mm-hmm. What was the impetus for the journal? There
1: was a couple of things going on there. One was um, um, surfer had a aging demographic. When I took over in seventy the average age was sixteen and when I left in ninety one the average age was twenty four and um, there we an art director came in named David Carson who later published a book called the End of Print and he was an um uh, a designer that uh, was uh, anarchistic. He he was trying to overthrow all the accepted principles of magazine design. And he was very bright and gifted, he had a great eye for photos, but he would put type in the gutter, make it upside down, do, kind of break the rules, which was very cool to young people, but the older guys were having trouble reading it, you know. And so when I left Surfer, um, the, the older readership had been uh, disenfranchised it. and that created an opportunity but also um, advertising uh, the, the normal surf magazines, in fact all magazines for the most part, were driven by advertising and uh, i had had a a relative by marriage during my first marriage who published journals. He lived in Pennsylvania and he would publish a a journal a month on different things and repeat them every year. And so he would go to the intelligence community and get experts on technology that applied to that activity and have them write on the cutting edge topics for that and publish a journal. And if there was 1872 uh, people in the intelligence community, he'd print 1872 copies and he'd sell them to them for 150 bucks a piece but really it was a newsletter or it was a journal that wasn't deluxe in its physicality but it was very intensive in its content mm-hmm. and they all had to have it. Yeah. So the deal was he charged as much as he needed to to make it worthwhile doing. Yeah. So we thought let's do an all content surf magazine because all the readers always say, "Oh, too much advertising, too much advertising." Oh. So let's do an all-content magazine and and charge what we need to, to to, to make it viable. Yeah. So we came out with the journal at twelve ninety-five, and we had six advertisers instead of forty percent advertising. And uh, that was, uh, um, it was, it was so different than anything else that was going on because. There's a lot of new age publications now that are enabled by electronic media and so forth. But that was, surfing prior to that had been mostly served by traditional format uh, sports magazines that carried tried to carry as much advertising as they could get and charged a comfortable cover price and sold the magazines at a loss and made it up with ad revenue. That's the sure. traditional Uh, magazine model. So our model was make it for five bucks and sell it for ten. And uh, so it was a book business but our idea was to sell these books by subscription four times a year. Can
0: I interrupt you real quick? You talk about um, kind of this higher level of content, quality Mm -hmm. of content. I feel like traditionally surf whatever um, print media or whatever, pander kind of to the Spicoli stereotype. Was there any concern of yours that there wouldn't be a market for this higher uh, quality content?
1: You know, um, Bruce Brown, I asked Bruce Brown how he did his movies, and he said he made movies for himself. And if and he was just lucky somebody else liked him too. Okay. And so um, when I left Surfer, I was 50 years old, and I had no interest in pandering to the lowest common denominator, which at the time surfing was doing very much. Surfer slightly less. Severson, when he started Surfer, he was an art teacher and, and a brainy guy, and he published a fiction called Malibu Lizards in the first issue of Surfer, where no one went surfing. And it was... And he he was... Uh, he You know, he did his cartoons and... Murphy and all, you know, he he kind of did a lot of kid shit in um, in Surfer, but really, he coached me when I came in uh, into his uh, his his group. He said, "Never underestimate the the intelligence of your readership, and never be afraid that you're going to go over its head." So um, I always thought that I I. I I believed that. I thought he was right. Another, you know, words of wisdom was um, when you write a caption, never tell them what they can see for themselves. Joe Blow going left at Velzyland is not a caption. Right. But Joe Blow had an argument with his girlfriend before he paddled out, and he was really angry, and he was just slashing back and forth out there in the water. That's a caption.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, uh, those were invaluable little tips because photography has been so hugely important to surfing as an information transmitter and then and surfing is so sensory that surfers can look at photos and get a bit of the rush you actually feel from looking at it but mind surfing the photo it's a little bit different than other sporting uh, photography I think in that sense but um, word quality we endeavor to to print literature and we also endeavor not to take ourselves too seriously. Because, yeah, you know, what TubeStick said, uh, surfing's the toy department of human affairs, you know. But, uh, but when you do a publication about anything, it tends to be about the people that do it. And people are fascinating. And the people that are interesting um, want to be described in a literate, probing Slightly unusual, uh, surprising way, yeah. And uh, so that challenge became very satisfying, and it also, I think, uh, uh, earned us a dedicated following of people that were tired of the kid shit. I agree. That's
0: definitely that, true. Uh, let me let me unpack that a little bit. Um, I think surf writing faces a number of challenges and one being that it's uh, so easy to be just repetitive. We're going to the same places, surfing, doing the same act essentially in the same destinations. What is your approach to um, storytelling for the Surfer's Journal? How do you avoid that repetition?
1: Uh-huh. Well we just try to uh, um, delve deep into personal experience and feelings and and and. Um, I hate to use the word but intellectualizing a little bit about something or pondering it or um, and there's some writers that are quite uh good at at looking at surfing in a fresh way
0: okay.
1: Matt Warshaw yeah is is loaded with history and wields it in an, in a in a completely fresh way usually. And, and off-the-cuff off uh, side shots and, and commentary that are witty and, and and knowledgeable. He's a good surfer. And that's kind of... You know, it's interesting to have a kook tell you how he perceives surfing. That's interesting. Yeah. And to have a great surfer explain the nuance is also interesting. So I think there's an opportunity for provocative content. Uh, in almost anything if you look for that yeah that would be the answer to your question
0: um, speaking of the surface journal specifically coming from surfer magazine can you talk about the luxury of inflating an idea rather than mm-hmm. contracting it because I know I've heard you yeah it's wonderful
1: it's wonderful we, we run about um, 8 to 11 features in the center well our center well I think 110 pages Uh, Center well of a typical issue of Surfer is forty to fifty pages. Okay. So um, we can we've run articles fifty pages long. Oh my goodness! (laughs) What article was that? Uh, I think it was on the life story of Nat Young. It was fifty thousand words, and Drew Campion did it, and it was it was uh, the article was as large as Nat's ego. (laughs) And. uh, no one had ever done anything like that in the surf magazine, and I don't think anyone will again.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, in, now in hindsight, was it successful?
1: Well, it was in the sense that it, that that we did it because we could; and nobody else could. Yeah. But I don't think it was prudent <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because if you didn't give a shit about Nat Young, half the book was about something you didn't care about. Sure. You know, but um, um, but so it, you know. And we're, we're in our 23rd year, finishing our 23rd year, and we're doing six issues a year. And um, <clears throat> there's never... Uh, and when you publish a magazine, you create a, a gravity that pulls things towards you, people. You attract material yeah. more than think it up. Hmm. And a lot of times we get photography and look for words to go with or we get words and look for photography to go with and we order stories but most most of the content comes over the transom or we're approached by the writer or the photographer uh so we don't have to sit around scratching our head thinking about abstract ideas as much as we should perhaps because it's so easy to to fill the pages with colored dots um as as it comes in but um but we're we we have a our sieve is pretty tight okay, and so the requirements on material sometimes if material is not written elegantly but it's real authentic um we'll we'll bite um you know there's all there's there's a lot of different uh, rationalizations we use to yeah to to print things but uh um
0: i think. There's a lot, obviously, of new platforms that are emerging, like this podcast, for one, where it's a great way to distribute surf content a different way. Obviously, photography's uh, expanded a lot in videography just due to technological advancements. What are the strengths and the limitations of print?
1: Well, um, the immediacy is a, is a limitation. It takes months for for a subject to translate to print in our process, but the the plus is that um, there's still a valuable reward from holding a tangible object in your hand and looking at it and knowing where it is in the mass of material and being able to turn the page and not Looking at small little bites that you that you rotate quickly, yeah. you can look, and so you're looking at a line in the context of a page, in the context of a bunch of pages. So the whole experience of it is um, quite different than looking at a screen. Um, still photographs, the we take advantage of space and design. Um, in our philosophy to to run photographs are a bit of a surprise sometimes Uh, We'll take a photograph that might just be a small sidebar photo and make a full page out of it Um, And we try to to uh, stay away from cliché photos as much as we can But I think that um, the tangible uh, the tangible aspect of print if it's worthwhile holding in your hand which is our challenge that there's there there's a there will always be a place for it Um, but the generations my kid I have 26 year old twin boys and a 43 year old the 26 year old twins still read things one reads books the other doesn't touch them. his kids won't be used to that reading books and reading newspapers as much. So I think there'll be uh, there'll be a, a, an attrition over time, and I don't know where it's going. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. and I don't think anyone does, because there could be a backlash. Right. <clears throat> about that too. Uh, um, but and and the journalist has supported uh, our family's life for twenty three years and we could stop now and uh and it would be okay um and one of the reasons we don't is because it's a, it's a support mechanism for a whole bunch of families right. and also that um there seems to be a passionate uh readership that deserves to be uh fed, you know, they're hungry.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. free that's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free terms and conditions apply let's talk about kind of the act of surfing itself um working in the surf industry i've struggled with uh managing that relationship like in the past i'd have to go surfing to feel like i was being a part of surfing now it's like i wake up and i'm coming to interview you Well, this is kind of part of surfing for me, so I don't go to the beach this morning. But then a week or two pass where I've been doing things that relate to surfing, but I haven't actually done the act of surfing itself, you know, because I'm satisfied in certain ways.
1: Interesting, yeah.
0: What has your relationship like um, managing the act of surfing versus production of surf content over the last 50 years? How Mm -hmm. has that evolved? Well, I
1: I used to be an everyday surfer, Uh and I was for a long time. And I haven't surfed for 10 years. Oh, really? I have a bad hip and bad shoulders.
0: When you say you haven't surfed for 10 years, literally, you haven't gone surfing once? Pretty
1: much. Oh, my goodness. No, I, I've, I've ridden a few waves, but I can't sit on a board because of my hips. I play singles tennis three times a week. <laughs> Doubles on weekends. So I'm not a couch potato.
0: Yeah.
1: But, um, <clears throat> but I surfed I started surfing in the late '50s, and I stopped surfing probably around 2000. When I stopped surfing, so I had, you know, 40, 40 plus years, of of surfing, and that gave me an understanding of, of the of the of, of the ride, the basic core experience of it, and the culture around it. Goes through transitions, and I'm, and I know the culture that existed during the first 30 years of my, of my, surfing life. And as I got older and more removed from it, I know less and less about it. So I don't describe surfing from a um, standpoint that uh, you would. But what I do is use my perspective, which is seasoned by being a student of the topic for 60 years or something, mm-hmm. um, and you get a perspective. When you publish a magazine or, or work in a magazine or in media, you, you're at the hub of all these information streams that are coming at you: the 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 surfers, the readers, the contributors, the staff, the, and the industry, and a, a lot of it sticks to you, and it's an unusual flow of information and its intensity and variety, and and so you end up uh, accumulating enough of it on your on your person that you have a unique perspective yeah. of the thing. And so I, I share that when I have something to say, but I'm talking more about philosophy of surfing or things that I've observed over large, large time frames. Like I, I observed that if you look... If you look at the ground around your feet and you see the what's going on, the geology of the ground around your feet, then you look at the ground from 38,000 feet in an airplane out the window. It's the same thing, just on a different scale. So you begin to say, oh, everything gets infinitely bigger and smaller and we get to see a certain range of it. Uh, but just what we can perceive doesn't mean that's where it stops. Sure. And so... Um, and so you kind of start to apply that kind of thing to surfing and, uh, um, and you can ruminate about it in an interesting way that's a little bit different than what you'll find from people who haven't, don't have the, the train that I have, that I've been riding on. And I don't, that's not an ego thing, it's just, just, just a byproduct of, uh, yeah. of what I've done. I
0: was talking to Carl Ekstrom about board design. And he explained something fairly similar, kind of unintentionally actually, but it was like, he was explaining his, um, you know, asymmetrical design evolution and how it evolved just from surfing and understanding that the board needed to respond a certain way and design adjustment would allow him to do that. And uh, later in the conversation explained that he hasn't surfed in 25 years, but his design has continued to evolve over that time. And so then... You know, I had to ask, well, like, if it, the design is fully based on what's happening in the water, how have you evolved past that without being in the water? And it was kind of a similar explanation where it was just like, I can still perceive the experience of being in the water because I did it so intensely.
1: You have a basis for understanding it. I call it mind surfing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I watch surfing. Yeah. And uh, and I feed on watching surfing. Right. And so I'll I'll look at how a person rides and I'll look at the wave and f- wonder, figure out where I would have taken off or, you know, all that stuff. And so um, you continue to experience it, watch it and understand a lot of it. But there's a lot of it that I don't understand. Like, I don't know, I, I cannot for the life of me understand slab, riding slabs, mm. for instance, because it's just, they look horrific and... I don't know if I could get myself to paddle into one or, you know, it's just the, that realm of experience is beyond my realm of understanding. Right. But the basic thing of paddling for a wave and catching it is, uh, you know, is very much in Carl's breadbasket and to a certain yeah. extent in mine. And he's, you know, a very interesting guy. He and Maury and um, Stan Pleskunis and George Greeno are of the Buckminster Fullers of the surfing world yeah. and uh, it's really a treat to uh, spend time with them and, and, and okay. have them just trip you out on totally. what they're into.
0: Totally. Um, anybody who kind of exercises in the morning, tennis or whatever it happens to be, um, knows how that improves the rest of your day and just your outlook on life and yeah. your relationships and all that kind of stuff. How is surfing as that morning activity different than just going to spin class at the gym or something like that
1: well that speaks to the difference between surfing and all those other things and uh, it's a different it's different things to different people but I I think there's uh, this sounds kind of corny but you know the Sun is the source of life for as we know it And it's the warmth of the sun that creates the friction, that moves the air, that makes the swells, that creates the waves that we've learned to paddle into and ride. Mm -hmm. So you're connecting to this very core energy Um, and there's something deeply um, engrossing and satisfying and rewarding about it and I don't know if it has anything to do with that or if it's just we're just fun hogs you know Yeah. but um, I th- I always used to say if if you've surfed any day's a good day doesn't matter what else happens it's very and true. it's really that's about what you were saying yeah um, so it's uh, just uh, it's like a meditation And it gets confused with all the animal behavior of the human being, um, but other mammals do it too, yeah <laughs> and uh you know, humans are kind of angry and greedy and awkward and, but some are gorgeous, you know, mm-hmm. Phil Edwards was elegant, he was Brishnikov, uh there's others too now, yeah, but yeah. you know.
0: That kind of was an intentional segue into the conversation about Timothy Leary. Can you tell me about um, the conversation you had with him that was featured in 1978 issue of Surfer Magazine? Mm-hmm. And then I have specific questions about it as well.
1: Uh, Leary, um, at one point in the earlier 70s, he'd been hiding out. I think he was a fugitive. He was you know, an LSD. He was a drug proponent. But he was also a Harvard professor, bright guy, and what he saw in psychedelic, in the psychedelic experience, was sort of uh, maybe a little bit on a lesser scale that, than that we got riding a wave. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, and he saw a parallel between surfing and and uh, the 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 um, free mind. And he, he was doing a lecture series, um, going around to colleges and lecturing. And he was... There was... He and... Um, I can't think of the Watergate figure who was uh, lecturing with him as, as the foil to Leary. Okay. A super uh, uh, conservative, redneck guy. I don't know that. And time. I... And, uh, but John's... Or, or Leary's uh, speech... His segment was entitled "Man, the Evolutionary Surfer." So at that time, it was unusual for mainstream society to reference surfing, or you didn't see billboards and ads on TV and stuff like you do now. And so, uh, and Leary was being uh, kept by a uh, think tank in Huntington Beach that was sort of new age and experimental, and 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 so. They were. He was associated with them for a while, and they would kind of leverage him for whatever value, and they leverage each other, and so this. So we called and asked if he would come down and, and be interviewed, and uh, and and this guy in a Mercedes from the think tank drove him down to Surfer Magazine office, and uh, and and I interviewed him. And later we went down to uh, the beach at San Clemente and Art Burr shot some photos of us. Was he a surfer? No. Okay. But he'd been around uh, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love in Laguna Beach and a lot of those guys were surfers. And so he he began to see surfers as a sympathetic cultural segment to his viewpoints.
0: Okay.
1: And... uh, um, so uh, there was this, and we found conversationally uh, sort of a common ground, because he was describing surfing in a way that uh, resonated for me, and I was describing surfing in a way that resonated for him. Yeah. And his 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 key thought was was that surfers were the throwheads of of man on earth, rather than the dregs. Because they were living uh, for the moment, mm-hmm. and they learned, th- and they valued that above all else,
0: right.
1: and uh, that the destiny of man was to evolve to to live in a purely aesthetic reality. Um, and and surfers were constructing that now for themselves, uh, and the the tube ride was the epitome of be here now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the past, the present, the the. The future and the present, <laughs> and and so he really respected what surfers did, and the fact that that a philosopher, albeit an LSD high priest, yeah. uh, certified, appreciated the act was uh, was very compelling, very interesting, and I was really lame at the time, like I spelled. Uh, T a o d o w like Dow Jones in the article I remember I was always horrified by that later on. He, um,
0: he had a really. I'm surprised that he wasn't a surfer because he had a really keen understanding of oh, yeah. the nuance of yeah, it. Yeah, you know, yeah. The things that you would think only you would only know if you had participated in it for a long. period
1: Yeah, and of time. and since he hadn't, there was obviously some common ground in the two experiences. Uh, of um his his philosophical basis and the surfing experience illustrated it to him Mm. um or was a metaphor yeah and uh, so that was very gratifying and i thought it was you know just really interesting and he wasn't he didn't seem to me to be an evil guy of course i was smoking pot and taking acid and yeah. So I wasn't like, he didn't offend me. Sure. But um, he was viewed as a pariah by a mainstream society.
0: Uh, I'll read one of the quotes from that piece. Um, he said, everything is made up of waves, electrons and neurons travel in waves, historical waves, cultural waves, in nature and life. Things come packaged in sequential, uh, cyclical, moving, ever-changing forms. And then one of the things that you guys discuss is that surfers have figured out a way to basically ride those waves and to participate in that exchange of energy from Mother Nature uh, and arguably are the only form that has figured out a way how to really ride those waves. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the piece was that it unpacks a quality of surfing that I've always had a hard time articulating. And um, I think you referred to it as a head game in a fluid medium. And um, you know that, that...
1: I was probably stoned.
0: <laughs> Do you remember that quote?
1: No.
0: Oh, okay. I thought it was summed up really well. Um, or I think Leary, Leary put it, the merging of your body's neuromusculature with power, energy, rhythm of nature.
1: Yeah, he's integrating... Uh, which is a very broad overview and and really exciting.
0: Yeah, but I think that we can all relate to that. And it it exists in golf a little bit where it's such a head thing, you know, and if if you aren't fully just living in the moment or if you're trying to remember the mechanics of your swing or the mechanics of how to ride a wave, you've already lost the experience. You need to just learn it in advance and then shut down and let your... Body. body takeover right. or nature takeover. Right. Um, just yesterday I was watching this new web internet series on the surfer Clay Marzo. Maui kid from Maui who has Asperger's and um, in interviewing all the people around him all they one of the main things they talk about is his ability just to live in the moment when he's on a wave. That's one of the key uh, things with Asperger's. Characteristics of Asperger's is Hyper focus, and you can only do it on one or two things. But whatever your thing is, you become, a savant
1: on that topic. Yeah,
0: you become the rain man of that. You one know? of our
1: sons is uh, Asperger, has Aspergers. Oh, really? Our twin, we have twin boys, and one works here, and one is a welder, and the welder is uh, very high functioning yeah. Aspergers. But yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar with the focus. Yeah, because okay. they perseverate on um, on minutia, and that allows them to do things there's some functional applications of that. Yeah, totally.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so with Clay Marzo, it's surfing, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and he is a savant, he's an incredible. Yeah, yeah. And I think Kelly Slater has that to a degree, and other great surfers where there's this oneness with the ocean, this ability to just kind of exist in the moment and be able to anticipate, you know, that the third set waves can be better than the first, or whatever that happens to be. Um, that's something, that intuition, I think, is something that I really enjoyed about that piece with Timothy Leary, is my point. Is that mm-hmm. he's really trying to understand the patterns involved in waves and the way that the earth works.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think you got more from that piece than a lot of people did, but it was all there. Mm. That was all there, and I think it's very perceptive of you.
0: One of the things that you, another quote from you in that piece was that surfing is non-productive non productive, or not, yeah, non productive and non depletive. Right. I think that's an interesting thing. Can you talk about
1: that quote? Well, um, when you finish surfing, it, it, well, that was part Leary when he said, uh, surfing leaves no trace of itself. Uh, your footprints are washed from the beach. Um, and so it's done something purely for the aesthetic moment. And that was the, the, the whole thing about surfing. It, the, is it has no purpose other than the art of the dance. Um, and in fact, surfing I think is really a dance form. Um, just you dance on a wave versus yeah. a you know a solid stage. But um, and so Leary's idea was that man would eventually abandon Earth, and create his own structural home and that will surf across the cosmos on on waves of cosmic energy. And he said, you know, as far out as that sounds, he said if you believe that that can happen, then you have to work to make it happen. You can't just sit back and have it happen.
0: It's your you have to
1: become yeah, an advocate and 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 work towards that. And then you're lifting right human civilization to another place
0: which is easy to theorize but what does that look like in terms of application
1: yeah you who know? knows yeah
0: um,
1: and it could be uh, a thousand generations down the road <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> well you know there's a tribe of Indians uh, called the uh, Pequeño or something and they they lived at Warner Springs at the hot springs that later became Warner Springs and they were the only tribe That they harvested acorns. They were the only tribe that planted oak trees for future generations. I thought that was interesting. You said only human society that did things for the future generations. Interesting.
0: Um, One more kind of thought about that non productive and non depletive statement Um, this surfing dance. Is purely aesthetic, and it defines your aesthetic in the real world. Actually, but it leaves no trace.
1: Um, yeah, it's interesting because uh, you can see who a person is when they dan- when when you watch them dance, huh? Uh, yeah. They're defensive or fluid or jerky, or and uh, so that, that's an interesting. Uh, ex- it's an interesting exhibition. Yeah. Um, but. Um, but it,
0: it defines your. Aesthetic for the rest of your life, but it has zero meaning or zero kind of value in and of itself. It, it doesn't didn't...
1: create anything useful. Right. Um, it's just for the joy of the, of the sensation. Right. And the feeling of um, being in harmony um, and succeeding... A goal, like a goal might be to make a section and if you make it you feel good.
0: Right. That, con- that conversation that you had with him seems to be kind of played an important role in you and your career. Well I was...
1: Uh, I was... <laughs> my father always was just freaked out that I'd gotten swept up in being a surfer and... Um, but I found this huge Rewarding, undefinable quality to it that that allowed me to let it take me away and consume yeah. me, and uh, Leary explained, helped me understand what the value of it was yeah. that it was so worthwhile.
0: Right
1: to to dedicate your life to it.
0: Right,
1: and that was, and that became a kind of a philosophical platform for my understanding of the sport.
0: One of the other things that you said in there was that surfing gives you a very elemental uh, illustrations of broader truths. In uh, because it serves kind of as a microcosm that we can grasp. I think it does. You know, surfing has a metaphor for life in it. Um, Do you want to talk any more about that, or any thoughts on that?
1: Surfing is, is the ocean is a teacher. And it will take a jagged rock and turn it into a round pebble, and it will take a jagged person and turn them into a smooth person, if the person lets it. Right. Um, and so you learn things from surfing that you can apply to life um, in many, many ways. So there's there's there is a value to to uh, the school of the University of the Ocean, yeah. <laughs> that, and you learn um, <clears throat> when you're a speck of lint on the face of a wave at Waimea Bay, you realize that the body can survive uh, forces that would break a rigid thing into pieces, but and you realize the power of your brain, and you realize that the power of the wave is only. The only part of the wave you have to deal with is the part where you're touching it. Hmm. So the the immense power of the of the totality is not your concern. And when you're riding a surfboard, it's just the wetted surface that. Mm-hmm. So uh, and there's a lot of uh, things that happen. Like you become confident. Oh, I can survive that. Oh, that's possible. It Doesn't look possible, but it is. Oh, wow! Things that don't look possible can be possible. That's a big lesson. Hmm. Um uh, too much rocker slows you down too flat catches edges all those things uh, uh trim you can trim your way through life uh, and so and if you become confident um in the ocean, I think that transfers
0: yeah um can you think of any other, were there any other like transformative conversations or interviews that you had with people over the years um, that I'm stand sure. out?
1: Well, philosophically, not so much, but just wonderful tidbits and anecdotal things. You know, George Downing, Dorian Paskowitz, uh, Phil Edwards, Mickey Munoz. Um, Listening to them talk in a relaxed way about things they've learned or funny things and um, is really, you know, incredible. Yeah. Um, and they each, um, like Phil Edwards and Mickey, are completely. Their lives are completely about the ocean. <clears throat> and Phil, when he stopped surfing and started sailing, tried to explain to me that he didn't stop surfing. He just got into a longer trim. And I was too, you know, I, w- I couldn't, I didn't get that when he told me. I got it later.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, um, and Munoz the title of his book was No, There's No Bad Waves. Um, but, and so, what he's saying is you and George greeno uh has detuned his surfing uh to ride a deflated surf mat in shore break junk, and he finds uh, he finds art in that
0: yeah uh
1: so he avoids the crowds and he it's just kind of a reverse intellectualism or um you know, so it's and you watch Lopez in the ocean and and he's a greedy motherfucker but he's a, he's he's so so from the moment he enters the water to when he comes out it's just poetry yeah you know and he's un, he's not apologetic about taking waves and why should he be right so i don't know if if it's that bad a deal you know because he's a beautiful person
0: right
1: so i don't know it's interesting it's like surfing A surf break like lower trestles is like uh, uh, wolf pack behavior. The young ones dominate, the older ones get driven off to the marginal Mm -hmm. food, Um, it's all just kind of biological design uh, because that's the human behavior injecting itself into riding a wave. So it's interesting to, uh, if you separate those things, like you watch a dolphin ride a wave, or, you know, a sea creature, and they just kind of, they frolic, and I and they probably have uh, social interaction, too, during the course of it, I would guess. Yeah, I would think so. So, if only we could listen to them.
0: Yeah. Um, changing gears a little bit, a lot, actually, did you watch the Bell's Beach contest the last couple of days? No. Do you have any interest at all in competitive surfing?
1: Yeah. You do. Sure. Okay. I, I, I I as a topic for for our journalism I don't covering a p- specific contest doesn't interest me right. but inspecting competition as a form in surfing I think is interesting. And it's 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 imbued in the in the human nature like I remember bef- the only contest when I started was Makaha. Mm. And and we'd get into hey I can surf better than you can. No you can't. Okay, we'll get Joe and Blow to watch us and we'll go out. So it's just it just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh um um it's uh, the fact that surfing is now so um communicated and so visually transferred and it's it's available and everything in the commentary is pretty intelligent too. Uh, some of the they'll have knowledgeable surfers commenting on what they're watching. Yeah. So I find that fascinating. Yeah. And if the waves are good, it's really like they they had a thing on a job, no cloud break some time ago that was as good as anything you could you could watch in terms of the waves and the commentary and the experience that you are seeing happen. Yeah, pretty dynamite. Yeah. So. I, don't, I think competitive surfing is quite interesting, and it's a valid form of surfing that's different than free surfing. But I think surfing has been shrink-wrapped and packaged and distributed and, and uh, modified and made convenient for packaging and distribution and all those things. And a lot of that was um, the absence of that was what was beautiful about it. Right. When I started right and so I resent a lot of it but my 26 year old son doesn't because he doesn't know any different yeah to him these are the good old days right. it's just a cycle you know
0: talking about how you can't really relate to that experience of wanting to ride a slab seems kinda similar the contest experience it's almost a different thing entirely
1: you know. yeah um, well you know timed uh, being judged for Uh, prescribed things, having a criteria for surfing that uh, doesn't um, leave room for um, invention too much or variance. So as I said in a recent piece, surfing today is really kind of judged by the radicalness of maneuvers that everyone's doing and who can do the most radical uh, version of them is, is considered the best.
0: Yeah.
1: So that's kind of like gymnastics.
0: Right.
1: Um, whereas, um, and there, it's like clones trying to be better at a certain thing.
0: Right. Well, the, in relation to our earlier conversation about aesthetic being the foundation of surfing essentially, and the, the embodiment of surfing has to do with aesthetic. Mm-hmm. The judging criteria doesn't doesn't make any accommodation for style at all. It intentionally leaves style out of it. It's the too subjective. Because it's too subjective. Yeah. But that does seem counterintuitive to the right. original act.
1: Yeah. Know? If you think about surfing around the turn of the century, um, and it was just people riding in on planks to the beach, and then uh, when they put fins on surfboards... It became competitive because you went laterally across the wave, and there was only room for one. When you're going straight into the beach, you could all ride the same wave. It was a party, so that changed the dynamic of surfing quite a bit. And when someone uh, mentioned that to me, I thought it was really interesting. It had never dawned on me that that was like a a crucible of (laughs) that that one moment when surfing, when the angling, which Left, you know, one person can go this way and this way, but ten can go like that. So, um, and then, um, style, but st- style was, uh, I think, present. I think so. Back then. In the, the regal yeah. posture.
0: It changes the, dy- that angling, though, changes the dynamic from being a group activity to being a very singular
1: uh, That's right. That's yeah. right. And so then there comes a competition for yeah. the resource. Right. That was a new dimension. Exactly. And it's still with us. <laughs> Stronger than ever, actually. And what about man-made waves? How do those uh, figure into the equation? You know, yeah. I'm, I am I think they're perfectly all right in a legitimate form of recreation. Uh, but when they want to uh, uh, have surfing be in the Olympics and be and occur in wave pools, because that would facilitate it, I think, go ahead and do it, but just don't call it surfing. Right. Because surfing is about interfacing with nature. That's a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. And if you want to build a gym that happens to be fluid and where waves are the, the... side horses in the rings <laughs> yeah. go ahead but just and that there's nothing wrong with it sure bitching. I mean to have a, a dynamic pool with waves in it out in some landlocked place where kids can play in that instead of just a static body of water mm-hmm. absolutely great you know yeah but, but then again people are willing to when they package surfing they always lessen it Yep, because they trim away yeah, so you know, What's wrong with that? I don't know. You know, it's not like it's wrong. It just just pisses me off.
0: It's just not this the natural state. No.
1: Statement. Yeah, and there's a there's a there's a something about protecting the core value, yeah. you know, that seems worth doing. Yeah. That's kind of what the journal is trying to do in a way. Well, I don't have anything to do with selecting articles, um, or editing them, or writing captions. But I, I am more about the, the uh, philosophy of the process, um, and coaching, uh, the editor Scott and Alex Wilson and whoever our team is at the moment, uh, to keep them. Uh, so th- to help them express the values that were the core values we were trying to um, to, to express, but th- that's the trunk they're putting the leaves on it, you know yeah. And I sh- they should be, I shouldn't be. yeah. And it will change the, the publication will change with the chemistry set of the humans that do it, but if the core vision of surfing is an art form, uh, as a human social bundle of all those things, um, as long as that kind of is there, I think the uh, the integrity of it will, will survive the, the absence of my presence, which ultimately will happen one way or another. Right. <laughs> Two jumps in a week. I bet you think that's pretty clever, don't It's, um, you know, and the role of media is so, is being redefined right now. And so the destiny of this publication is really open to conjecture. But I I hope, I think, that uh, there'll be a place for the tangible worth holding in your hand. Um, But the question is how many, if the audience for it shrinks, that means the price goes up. And so there may be a life cycle in play there. We'll see.
0: Um, I know it's been 10 years. Final question for everybody I interview is, what was the last surfboard you wrote?
1: It was a Phil Edwards. Um, It's right out there um, on the floor. Uh, Just a one-stringer, speedy shape, uh, longboard. 10-2, into that was always my length.
0: Where where'd
1: you ride it? Oh, probably middles. I, I used to live for lowers. Yeah. And then I segwayed down a little bit, so I didn't get my ass chewed it so much. Right. Well, actually it was ego, because I, I hate to get in people's way. Oh, okay. And so I just, I can't, I, and I don't like, sur- I don't mind surfing behind, but I don't like to be in front. A lot of pressure. Yeah, and it's just not cool, you know, it's not yeah. where I started. Right. <laughs> Excellent. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. That was Excellent. Fun.
0: We have Steve's full article with Timothy Leary from that 1978 issue of Surfer Magazine on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. Thank you, Steve Pesman, for all of your work over the years. Uh, The Surfer's Journal is an absolute treasure to the surfing community. We are very grateful for your contributions. If you'd like to subscribe to the Surfer's Journal, we'll have a link to their website on surfsplendorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to share it with a friend. It's easy to do via social media where you can follow us at Surf Splendor on Instagram and Twitter or on facebook.com forward slash surfsplendor. If you listen to the show in iTunes or Stitcher, Just make sure to rate and review the show. That's a great way to help other people find the show. As you know, you, the listener, are our only form of advertising. So anything that you can do to help promote or share the show, we are greatly appreciative. It's your way to invest in the future of the show. The more people who are listening, the more shows we will be able to produce. So thanks as always for listening. This is your host, David Scales, for Surf Splendor, saying we will see you next week with an all-new episode. Mahalo.